0: This is Battlegrounds.
1: On today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on the Kingdom of Norway, a strong economic and security partner of the United States. Our guest is Her Excellency Ina Eriksson-Sorayda, member of the Norwegian Parliament and chair of the Standing Committee on Foreign Affairs and Defense. Ms. Saraita served as Minister of Foreign Affairs from 2017 to 2021 and was the first woman to hold that position. She previously served as Minister of Defense, where she called for increased NATO defense spending following the 2014 Russian invasion of Crimea. She has been a Member of Parliament since 2001. Ms. Saraita began her career as a television producer and is a graduate of the University of Tromso where she studied law. Norway is strategically located in Northwestern Europe and was the only NATO member to share a border with the Soviet Union. The Kingdom of Norway was established in 872 CE and has existed continuously since, including as parts of unions with both the Kingdom of Denmark and the Kingdom of Sweden. In 1814, Norway adopted its current constitution and peacefully transferred power from its absolute monarchy to democratic institutions based on the principles of sovereignty of the people, separation of powers, and human rights. Upon separation from Sweden in 1905, Norway declared its neutrality, which persisted through World War I, though both commercial and political sympathies tied Norway to Britain throughout the war. Despite declaring neutrality at the outbreak of World War II, Nazi Germany invaded Norway in April 1940. Norwegian and Allied resistance efforts on land had limited effectiveness, but the resistance inflicted lasting damage on the German naval fleet. After the war, Norway became a founding member of NATO and the United Nations. The United States and Norway have enjoyed a peaceful and productive relationship. Norway received Marshall Plan funds to modernize its economy. The post-war socialist government distanced itself from the communist bloc, and strengthened foreign policy and defense ties with the United States. Norway has twice been asked to join the European Union, and twice declined following narrow defeats in referendums in 1972 and 1994. Carefully balancing diplomatic relations during the Cold War, Norway frequently hosted NATO exercises and allowed Soviet-owned mining operations on its territory. The discovery of oil and gas in the North Sea in the 1960s and its subsequent extraction has fueled persistent economic growth and allowed Norway to create the world's largest sovereign wealth fund. Norway's government structure and safety have made it a destination for immigrants and asylum seekers from around the world. Norwegian troops have served with distinction in the Balkans, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria, The Norwegian Air Force participated in the 2011 military intervention in Libya. Norway is central to multinational discussions concerning the protection of the Arctic with its control of the Svalbard, the world's most northern permanent settlement. We welcome Ines Saraita to discuss significant geopolitical shifts after Russia's renewed invasion of Ukraine and the implications for European security, the European Union, NATO, and the transatlantic relationship.
0: Ina Erickson Sarida, welcome. It is so good to see you again and a pleasure to have you on Battlegrounds.
2: Thank you so much, HR. It's, it's really good to see you again, too. It's been some years now,
0: <laughs> it has been a few years. <laughs> and, and, you know, with the uh, I think we might just start because we're we're talking so recently after the terrible assassination of Prime Minister Abe, someone who had I had the pleasure of knowing and hosting on on this series, and I wonder if you might share a few thoughts about about Prime Minister Abe and and his legacy.
2: Well, it it was a terrible shock to hear about his assassination, and and of course, for anyone who has followed international politics for for some years, they've also seen the efforts he made, uh, not only as the longest serving Japanese prime minister, but also the fact that he wanted to reform, especially on the security policy side, um, a very, I would say, conservative Japanese society and a society that was really still marked after the war. And his way of trying to make changes in the constitution, trying to change the self-defense forces, knowing full well what... The threat assessment and, and the picture around Japan was and how it changed over time. So I, I really think he was um, a one who wanted to reform. Of course, not always easy, um, but I think his legacy will be one of reform and, and also courage to, to try to shake up some of the ideas, some of the legacy that wasn't really all that fit for purpose anymore when the world changed. Uh, And of course, societies are to a certain extent always conservative in the sense that change is not easy and change shouldn't always be easy. For instance, when it comes to constitutional amendments, they they shouldn't be done overnight. There's a reason for them being in the constitution. But having said that, when when the world changes, um, everyone has to relate to the world as it is and not as it was or as we'd like it to be. And that is why I think um, those who are doing moderate but well uh thought through uh, reforms um should also have that as part of their legacy
0: you know he was a visionary i remember you know, i think he first mentioned the phrase uh, indo-pacific in 2006 and and uh our friend here at the hoover institution a fellow fellow here matt pottinger uh said that abe invented the indo-pacific and he, and he really did you know, you know there's so much to talk about right and and uh, I remember when we first met at, at, and and you were great you graciously hosted me at this small island uh lighthouse on a, on an island off of Oslo for a fantastic t- dinner and uh and we were talking about Russia mm-hmm. Russia had recently invaded Ukraine and the presentation that I gave at the army conference was on Russian new generation warfare the US Army had just completed a, a study on Russian new generation warfare and you know we often talk about Black swans, unanticipated events, but this was a pink flamingo. I think the reinvasion of 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 Ukraine. You know, what is what is your your reaction to the invasion in from a Nor- Norway's perspective, and and uh, and how do you think this fits in to Putin's broader campaign uh, to advance his objectives?
2: Well, I think it's no doubt that this fits well in. I mean, if you if you look at Putin and and his political career and his his legacy. There are some features that I think are important to remember um, right now. One of them being that he, of course, always takes a very revisionist view on things. He looks back at history. He's not looking into the future. And he never really accepted the dissolution of the Soviet Union, uh, which means that in his mind and the regime's mind, he still has a legitimate um, right to exert influence over uh, neighboring states, that used to be a part of the Soviet Union. Of course, no one else accepts that history point of view, but but in his mind, that is part of what should build his his legacy. Uh, He has never uh, respected human rights. He has never respected the sovereignty of states or the ideas of democracy, rule of law, and that comes very clear to the forefront right now because he doesn't shy away from anything in his pursuit for that, I would say, that, that very um, important influence to, uh, to the Russian regime. And, and I also think it's important um, to remember in, in these days that one of the things that he's most afraid of is democracy and the fact that countries around Russia are having democracies uh, developing, they're having economic growth, uh, people are allowed to express themselves freely, to start enterprises, to go abroad to study and so forth. That is maybe one of the biggest threats to his regime and his ruling, that democracy has a very... Um, I would say, a clear tendency to be contagious to the countries around it. Uh, and when he sees uh, the risk of democracy, it is also he's also seeing the risk of being undermined uh, as a ruler. And, and that is maybe one of the most dangerous features. And, of course, this all started when Ukraine very clearly turned westwards. Uh, remember back in 2014, and we had this conversation, you and I, after 2014, on what actually was the trigger points to uh, the annexation of Crimea. And I think one of the most important things was that Ukraine at that time was about to sign an association agreement with the EU. And that would of course cement, I would say, the the West turning, West leaning uh, of Ukraine in a way that he could not accept. And of course that was condemned broadly and widely but if we just take a pause for a minute, you would also see that this the, the annexation of Crimea also followed in the, the path of what he did in Georgia in 2008. It was an attack on Georgia that was, I would say, by and large, not really dealt with by the Western world in the sense that business went on as usual. Uh, there were some voices as to how, um, how damaging this was, but nothing really happened, no consequences came of it. Right. I think that paved the way for the annexation of Crimea because Putin had seen that, well, uh, in his mind, this was a way to exert influence that would not have any repercussions for uh, Russia, not at least not notable repercussions. And after the annexation of Crimea, of course, the international condemnation was much stronger uh, and sanctions and restrictive measures came in place. Uh, Norway, as a non-EU member, can, we, we aligned fully, and we have aligned fully ever since 2014 with the EU sanctions on, on Russia. But there has also been, of course, from every European country, still interaction with, with Russia, even though the condemnation was, was strong. And I think what he uh, concluded, was that yes it would have a political cost to do more in ukraine than continue the war that he has been going on with now for the past eight years in the east of ukraine but it wouldn't have a political cost that was impossible for them to carry well he was not i think taking into account the very very strong western alliance the unity the strong condemnation at least from the countries that was important to him in his immediate neighborhood. Of course, there are countries, and I would say populous countries, who have either kind of not taken a decision as to what to condemn and what not to condemn, and there are countries who are aligning with Russia in this. But I think that the very unanimous and very clear signals from uh, Western countries was not what he expected. And of course, addition to not expecting this to be a long haul fight, I mean, what he had given to both the Chinese and others were that this was supposed to be a fight that could go on maybe for a week or so, and then Kiev would be taken and a new regime would be instated, a regime that would take care of Russian and not Ukrainian interests. So I think this falls very typically into the picture of who he is, what his ideas are, um, and I'm I'm sorry to say that this was not surprising. I, I've been saying in, in a couple of instances that I think this war was, uh, I mean, the brutality um, is surprising. But the war and the invasion itself was surprisingly unsurprising in right. my opinion.
0: Right. And, you know, especially after the last August, you know, publishing this 7,000 word essay, as you're making so many important points here, I think is for us to, for us to learn from what, from what's happened so far and apply it to the future. We didn't do enough, obviously, we being, you know, the the Western world and like-minded nations, including NATO and, and, uh, uh, and and certain non-NATO countries. To, to to deter putin and and it was a failure of deterrence i think you're right a, fr- a ukrainian friend of mine who's been on on battlegrounds uh, actually he called it the vegetarian response to, to, uh, to the 2014 invasion and of course you know we have that it, an unfortunate image of of then secretary clinton bringing the reset button to lavrov right after really the invasion of of uh, of georgia uh in 2008 but it wasn't just the obama administration It was multiple u.s administrations thought okay if we just you know accommodate with putin if we just allay his concerns you know then then he'll maybe change his ways and of course that debate is still going on there's still some people recommending president macron has been in this camp and 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 chancellor schultz although he's moved off it a bit saying well can we find an off-ramp for, for putin But, you know, I think uh, an off ramp for Putin is just an opportunity for him to look for another on ramp. So what what are your thoughts about these these proposals for negotiations at this stage? Uh, What do you think the chances are of of Putin having a fundamental uh, change of heart?
2: I don't think they are present at the moment. Uh, And I think the war has now gone on for such a long time that It is also very difficult to see any kind of negotiations that are meaningful uh, coming up anytime soon. And of course, that has to do with the strength on the ground. And you would know more about this than many, that that negotiating from a position of strength is very different compared to to negotiating from a a position of weakness. Um, And I very much fear that there will be no meaningful or real negotiations uh, until there is one party that feels or uh, thinks that um, it has the upper hand on on the ground, and and right now the devastation, the the enormous uh, the, the consequences, the, the the tragedy for the people of Ukraine is just so enormous that I think it's very difficult for us to to grasp the enormity of it all and and we're looking at war crimes. we're looking at a, a, a country that needs to be rebuilt from the bottom in in many uh, places and the trauma that the people have been subject to over these months since
0: more, more than half of the children defaulting. are displaced you know, yes I'm
2: more than half of the children are displaced. more than nine million people have right. either fled the country or are internally displaced. so it's really, it's, it's just enormous. And people keep forgetting that Ukraine is a big country. They have some 41 million inhabitants. Uh, and, and it's really, it, it is a country also, of course, that has its struggles also before, also before the war. Um, or rather this war. Uh, because the, the attack on Ukraine started with the annexation of Crimea. And the war has been going on for eight long years in the East. And I visited um, the contact line and it was a really devastating experience because um, I don't think at that time people realized, I mean, people outside the region realized how enormous the trauma and the devastation was. Some 14, 15,000 people had been killed up until then there were 1.5 million people who were internally displaced on a geographically very, very small piece of land in the heart of Europe. All the international humanitarian organizations were present trying to help people with their basic needs like food, shelter, water, medicines, and and the conditions that people were living under were just, uh, I would say, it, it was horrible to see.
1: And this was all before
2: february
0: 24th just to remind our yeah. viewers this is all before february 24th before 25th, yes you, you know the the other, the other point that you made that i think is, is really important is that putin didn't get the international response he expected right he expected division he got unity he expected weakness i think he got more strength than than he yeah. bargained for in terms of of the EU's response, NATO's response, Norway's response, the UK, I think uh, the the US, Japan, I mean Singapore joined the sanctions against uh, against Russia, and and I, I wondered how you would grade what we've done since the failure to deter. I mean, I, I'll tell you, uh, you know, I was very disappointed with what we did before February 24th. We kept talking about everything we weren't going to do, right, and we weren't providing, I think, the defensive capabilities that may have dissuaded. Putin, if he had seen the Ukrainian military gaining more defensive capabilities, we pulled out of the Black Sea. I mean, I could go on, but but after February 24th, slowly but surely, we've been increasing the capabilities of the Ukrainian uh, armed forces. The condemnation has been you know, pretty much universal among like-minded countries, at least. Uh, the sanctions have been imposed from the, from the economic uh, and financial sanctions that aim to reduce the resources available. Uh, to Putin for his war-making machine. How do you grade the response? What more do you think needs to be done?
2: Well, I think the response has been overall very good and very united. And I think that has in itself been um, a very important thing in in our joint response. Uh, Of course, over time, that could be challenged um, because different countries have kind of different was a challenges, they they have different interests. Um, but what we've seen so far, and I think very much with the US at the helm as well, importantly, uh, because US leadership is needed, not only in these situations, but in, in any situation regarding security policy transatlantically. So I think that it has been a good response, the willingness to to step up, the willingness to do things that countries haven't done before. Like for instance, most European countries, have never donated weapons to a country at war. So shifting away from from that political line has been quite momentous in European countries, um, Norway included. Um, But when things started to move, it moved quickly. Um, And I'm just very alert on the fact that we have to keep our attention up. It's very easy when a war has gone on for months Um, the pictures you see rolling over the screen uh, 24-7 are just devastating. And it's very much to take in for most people. But I'm very afraid that over time you can see a certain fatigue, both when it comes to the willingness to help people's attention overall. And and I'm I'm just very mindful of the fact that we have uh, work to do jointly to continue to keep the attention high on the agenda. Um, And I think... Right now, of course, to be very honest, we're in a perfect storm right now, uh, if you can call it that. We see so many crises being exacerbated by each other. We see the war coming on top of countries not even being out of the pandemic yet. It comes uh, as a way of multiplying already existing crises, but it also brings new crises, like a food crisis, like energy crisis. So we're now going to grapple with all of this, and and that is that crucial point where I fear that over time, it can be more important for certain countries to take care of what they would call their national interest, both because they are geographically quite far away from the war, or that they have seen that they can do, they have have done more or less what they can do. Uh, And that is where the responsibility of just keeping the help up, keeping the attention up is going to be uh, very, very important. And you have to remember also that when, it, when you talk about the, what we have done and what the West have done, like-minded countries have done, I would also say it's quite interesting to see what has happened in NATO over these months. I mean, the, the debate on NATO in Sweden and Finland just matured in a matter of days and weeks. Right. Uh, and those two countries, very dear neighbors to, to us, hmm. they are also... In, they, they, they've taken enormous steps and, and shown, I would say, bravery in facing a new security policy situation. And, and what they have done, of course, is, is going to strengthen NATO, no doubt. But it's also very important to see how things or the, the, the picture have changed completely uh, over the past months, also with the new strategic concept that was adopted now at the Madrid, Madrid summit. When I came into this in 2013 as a, as a new defense minister, the strategic concept from 2010 had no mention of China and mentioned Russia as a strategic partner, which is quite interesting to think about now. My and first, and Russia was anecdote, still
0: observing in the, on the NATO council was still in exactly. Brussels. Exactly, and,
2: and this is a really, I mean, um, it's an anecdote, but I think it's a it's an interesting one to to just talk about how quickly these changes happen. My first ministerial in October 2013, I had been a minister for five days and the ministerial came up in Brussels. And the Russian defense minister was a guest at the defense ministerial. He sat up at the podium together with Anders von and There were gift exchanges. It was, uh, everyone was in a good mood and so forth. My next ministerial in 2014 took place exactly when Russia annexed Crimea. And that says a lot about how quickly these changes can happen and how immensely important it has been for NATO to just stand shoulder by shoulder now and also to offer countries who now feel threatened by the new situation and the fact that Russia is again attacking a neighboring country to take them into uh, the security community that NATO represents.
0: Inu, could you talk a little bit more about about NATO expansion with Finland and Sweden? Of course, you share a border with Russia. Finland shares an immense border with Russia and, of course, a history of 1939 that looks a lot like February 24th or the invasion of 2014. Mm So does Poland 1939, by the way, from the perspective of Nazi Germany in terms of events that led up to the reinvasion of Ukraine. But Finland, you know, has been under duress for a long time, as have other countries on the border of Russia. They have developed a pretty significant capability to Mm -hmm. counter Russian subversion. They have a center that's dedicated to that. I think they're going to bring a lot of tremendous expertise to NATO. But I'd love to hear your thoughts. Last time we spoke, you were about to go in to the Norwegian parliamentary vote uh, to to approve uh, Mm -hmm. from uh, Norway's perspective. Uh, uh, their, their, uh, uh, their acceptance into NATO, but what, what do Sweden and, and Finland bring to the Alliance?
2: But They bring a whole lot to the Alliance. I mean, they are NATO's closest partners even now, um, but the fact that we're now going to be under the same security umbrella, the same guarantees, the, the joint defense planning, not least, so that we can not only do things together in peacetime and during exercises, but we can just apply the same things if a crisis or war occurs. And and that is going to be a tremendous change. Um, And I also think that we will see very clearly that this enhances the security, not only regionally in in our region, in the Nordic region, but also in Europe, transatlantically. And and also, I think it has enormous political value because we, we are a community of values in NATO. And the fact that they decided to join fully means a whole lot. And it also means that I mean, look at a country like Finland that that you mentioned yourself. They have a very clear, I would say, uh, realistic policy into this discussion. As you say, they have a, a long border with Russia. They have experienced how this can be before. And what they are seeing is that they have to have a realistic view on this. When Russia again attacks a neighboring country I think to a certain extent, Finland felt that they didn't have much choice other than to reorient themselves away from where they were uh, and not only being the closest partner, but taking the step fully and becoming, uh, becoming a member. Same thing with Sweden. For Sweden, the, the freedom of alliances for them is very rooted. It's identity uh, as much as it, as it is security policy. So for them to sh- to shift away from that policy also took a lot of, of courage. And, and I think that it's going to be strongly felt across the Alliance that we're now able to do more things together, not only for peacetime purposes, but in fact, also for um, a challenging situation or a situation where a crisis can actually uh, occur. This was not in Putin's calculus. I think I think he was planning to use the invasion of Ukraine again to deter Sweden and Finland from entering into NATO. But of course the reverse thing happened. Um, and, And that also shows how, of course, strong and powerful NATO is. But it's also a very good picture of how countries are not letting Russia bully them around, um, like Russia is usually doing with countries who differ in opinion or with people in their country who differ in opinion, which we have seen so many uh, examples of in, in the past years. And, and I think it's important for us to remember as neighboring country, for us, for Finland, and even though Sweden do not have a border with, with Russia, of course they, they are. Um, in the middle of of, uh, Norway and Finland. I think it's so important for us to remember that the Russia that we are neighboring is not a different Russia from the Russia invading Ukraine. It's the same Russia. It's the same regime. And they have um, a policy that is unacceptable for us as neighbors. We cannot live in fear of Russia either being aggressive towards us or being aggressive towards other neighboring countries and that is why they are they are coming into uh, NATO now and they are more than welcome and we ratified in Parliament as early as the 16th uh, of June so we have done all the paperwork so to say so um, when everything is signed and finished uh, in NATO so uh, we are then ready to just uh, welcome them.
0: You know you you mentioned that russian aggression on your borders I and mean, submarines encroaching into your, into your towards your coastlines and and uh uh you know mobilization sometimes along your border you've seen it uh, over over many years one of the one of the aspects of of russia's initial failure in in ukraine was that their military did live up to their appearance right they look very good on parade you know, on the victory Day parades but they didn't look very good on this offensive and in critical areas of reconnaissance integration of combined arms and joint capabilities logistics and did, did, did that surprise you and, and what how did how do you what, what do you think the causes were of Russian conventional military weakness and and vulnerabilities that were displayed uh, during the reinvasion in February March of of, of this year
2: well I'm sure there are others who are even better placed to to answer that question in depth, but I could try to offer some some explanations. I mean, we've seen ever since 2008, 2009, quite a large modernization of the Russian armed forces. And and it was also necessary in a way because they have not done that for the past decade. So they they had to do something in order to to keep their military ability up. Um, but I'm not entirely sure that they have a military culture that allows for the honest discussion of how the situation is. And and you can see that on the battlefield as well, uh, how they are doing leadership on the battlefield is sometimes very um, illustrative to how they are doing leadership and, and how they are telling people Higher up in the system, what the real uh, challenge here is, and interestingly, this is just uh, just a, a, a side um, a sidestep, but still, I think it's also very interesting to see how China is reading this because China has most of their I would say military learnings and experiences by looking at Russia. And what they are seeing is not something that they are very um, comfortable with. I mean, they they see that this is not a military that kept the standards that we thought they did. And it's going to be very interesting what kind of conclusions China draw from this.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: Because if if they see that, well, they have the same, in a way, culture for not letting the um, higher level know the exact status of the forces, this exact situation, what they can do, what they, what they cannot do, then they would also be, uh, I think, a bit challenged. And they also buy a lot of military equipment from, from Russia. So this is really, uh, this is just a side step, but I think it's interesting to see what kind of conclusions they, they draw over time. But I, I've we witnessed um, over the past years that Russia, they wanted to display not only their new military equipment, they have commissioned some new equipment that, in my opinion, poses a very, I would say a big strategic challenge to NATO uh, potentially. And, of course, one of them is the Severbinsk class submarines that are very, very quiet, uh, difficult to detect, uh, that also can effectively, and the Russians can now effectively shut off the greenland Iceland, uk gap, and by that also hampering the reinforcement uh, to, to Europe in a situation of crisis. And this we know, they also um, exercised, I would say more complex pattern, more complex flight pattern. They also exercised some mock attacks on our installations. But by and large, I would say that we had a, a, I mean, in in the high north, there is a relative, I would say, low tension and calm. And we've been working a lot to keep it that way. Mm. But I don't think we can be naive about this because when, when interests are diverging, you will also see that a country like Russia will probably have no intentions to take care of other countries' interests than their own. And we've seen that, we've seen that right now as well. So we saw modernized armed forces from Russia, we saw the commissioning of new capabilities, we saw the, the use and also the the placement of long range precision guided missiles, we could see all of the things that they've been been increasing. But most importantly in, in our immediate neighborhood has been the reinvigoration of the Bastion defense concept that is so important for them. And of course they have much of their nuclear capabilities at the Kola Peninsula, which is literally at our doorstep. And that is also why we wanted to drag NATO's attention up North, just to make sure that everyone knew the strategic challenge that potentially could be there. And I remember my, my first meeting with Jim Mattis as defense secretary, I, th- the most important thing I brought with me to the meeting was a, a picture of the Vince class uh, submarine, because that was so important for us to convey to, to the US that this was really um, one of the big strategic challenges that, that we saw. And uh, I had the pleasure of working closely with Jim, but also two other defense secretaries and and three other uh, secretaries of state. So it's been been wonderful to to get to know all of them from both Republicans and Democrats. And it's been uh, it's been a wonderful uh, thing to be able to work with them
0: so i'd I'd like to talk with you about the response now to the russian invasion we talked a little bit about how we didn't do enough after 2014 or 2008 invasion of georgia for that matter or 2007 uh, denial of service attacks on estonia or you could go on about it but uh, so what more do you think we should do in defense and i'm going to ask you some follow-on questions about what we've talked about a little bit of energy security where norway is a huge global player there and then also supply chain resilience and that of course will bring in china but first what more needs to happen in defense? There's some encouraging news, obviously, across NATO that countries are going to meet the 2% pledge from the Wales Conference. But but, uh, but, how satisfied are you with the response so far in terms of, of strengthening defense? And, and what more do you think needs to be done?
2: Well, I'm very happy with countries, uh, including Norway, over many years now, been strengthening defense budgets and, and also buying new equipment that of course as you know better than most takes a long time to get it operational from the time you decide to buy a a new main battle tank or a new submarine or a new f-35 it takes some years uh, until you have that capacity fully integrated into your armed forces but the signals that are coming out of all european capitals right now and the us and and everywhere i think is that there is a need to enhance defense spending and and i don't think that people fully have realized what a landmark decision Germany made to get to 2% to invest some 100 billion euros over the next years in defense. And of course, that has to do with history. I mean, Germany has for many years been saying that we're not entirely sure that Europe or the world is ready for a very big um, German army. And, And you could understand that from historical reasons. But... I think the challenge that we all will be facing is twofold. One is that there will be a race for getting those capacities that we need. And that, again, has to do with supply chains. It has to do with, we say, different um, ways of of purchasing equipment. And it's going to be quite difficult for um, the suppliers to be able to answer up to all the demands and needs, because everything is happening at the same time. Everyone is wanting to invest right now very much. So I think we will have a situation where it can take some time until all the material and all the equipment will be ready to use in the respective countries. The second thing I think we have to be very, very mindful of is that we cannot apply yesterday's defense planning on today's and tomorrow's situations. So before we now enter into uh, an enormous amount of spending on capacities that we are going to have in our respective armed forces for the next 30, 40, 50 years, we have to make sure that we ask all the right questions uh, so that we just don't, because now everyone is spending so much money, so that we just don't pull out the drawer take up everything from our wish list from five or 10 years back and say, now we have the money to actually buy this. That may not or may be the right equipment or the right ideas for dealing with what we're seeing at the moment and is likely to see in the future. Just imagine HR and you know know this well uh, too. What technology has taken up enormous leaps over the past Five years that we didn't even imagine five or 10 years back, and that has to be integrated in a way that makes our armed forces capable to deal with a set of challenges. And and, and I think that this is going to be quite a difficult discussion um, in many countries, because we we like to think that we um, just want to build on what we have, which in many cases can be absolutely right and correct. But in some cases, we we have to kill our doll- darlings and just find new ways of doing things because they work better for, for the situation that we are in right now. And I, I can repeat what I said at the beginning. We have to relate to the world as it is, not as we wish it was. Right.
0: And I think this breaking this pattern that we've been in for a long time of acquiring fewer and fewer, more exquisite, more expensive systems, I think what we're seeing in Ukraine is capacity. The size of the force matters a lot. And, you know, what's astonishing to me is how much ammunition is being fired there in, in Ukraine, which is, you know, we talked about the deficiencies of Russian forces. It doesn't take a lot of skill to, to bombard residential areas and commit mass murder of civilians, which is what the Russians are are, are doing now. But, you know, they've fired, they've fired more artillery ammunition uh, in, in the Russians have in Ukraine than the United States did across twenty years of war in Iraq and in Syria. So, I think uh, I think you're right. Is that we have to think really about the broad range of challenges we're going to face and and build in some new defense capabilities and keep some old ones around and combine them to to be able to accomplish certain missions like destroy Russia's fires complex right to protect civilian areas and protect our forces. You know, you, you mentioned you, you mentioned. Uh, Already the you know the the issue of energy security and I think it's quite clear now that giving an authoritarian regime coercive power over your energy sector is a bad idea and and of course I'm thinking of Germany and and Nord Stream too and uh, and what do you see as trends in energy security uh, associated with trying to to also have an effort to reduce carbon emissions, but do so in a way that doesn't constrain growth and, and create economic difficulties. Norway's at the center of that debate and, and, and an innovator in that sector. What, what advice do you have for our listeners on how to improve energy security and what's Norway's role in, in doing so?
2: Well, first and foremost, we, we've always been and we will continue to be a very reliable supplier uh, of energy. And we do not politicize um, our contracts, for instance, and, and where we export to and, and what we do. And I think that's been extremely important from the get-go that we, we have a different stance on this. I mean, when I, was, when I was in Ukraine, as I told you, when I visited the contact line, there was a real, of course, discussion not only on Nord Stream 2, but it was a discussion that the Ukrainians even then felt uh, very strongly that Russia could kind of turn off the tap at any moment they desired, and, and the insecurity that that gave to a whole, a whole population was, of course, enormous. They've learned to live with it in a way because they they tried to find other ways of, of circumventing that challenge. But it was very real, and it is very real. And you see now what Russia is doing. Uh, I think we can see more of that. And what we have been doing in the very short term is, of course, to produce at full capacity and then some, uh, just to make sure that we can provide natural gas, that that we also can provide petroleum uh, when, when that is needed, and it definitely is right now. But at the same time, we have to make the shift. We have to make the green transition, because that's the only thing that's going to both give enough energy and enough environmentally sound energy over time uh, is to also make that transition. And to do both at the same time uh, is a bit difficult when you have an energy crisis and you are also making a transition that was already um, well underway in, in many European countries. So my hope is that what we're seeing now is going to give that a little push, an acceleration but we are going to need full capacity of also other energy sources at the moment. The challenge is that right now, everyone is looking to be more independent, of course, of of Russian energy, very frankly speaking. And I have no problems with understanding that at all. The challenge, however, is that it's not easy to make that shift very quickly. And there are several reasons for that. One, of course, is that, it is difficult to provide enough energy from other sources in the short term. The second point is that the long-term energy contracts have already been signed and to divert that energy from countries who were supposed to receive it and to European countries in the short term is also very difficult. The third point is that when you're looking into renewable energy like wind, like solar, it takes time to build. (laughs) And of course, again, supply chain challenges comes into the mix here. So it takes longer than it could have done to actually build these capacities. And the irony of course, is that the countries in Europe most reliant on Russian energy are also some of the countries who are less, I would say ready to um, to receive other energy like LNG from, from the US because there are no LNG terminals uh, or there are, but there are not too many terminals outside of Spain and Portugal and no transmission capacity. So now Germany is building new terminals to receive LNG as one example. But These things are going to take time. So in the meantime, we will have to do as much as we can to keep energy supply stable and apolitical in a situation where everyone is looking for for different solutions. And, And I think it's a very good thing that we all get less reliant on uh, Russian energy, but we have to realize that it is going to take some time.
0: And you know, isn't this a lesson that's relevant to China as well? Because so many supply chains have become really vulnerable to disruption in China with single points of failure there or over-reliance on, on really critical components for the energy transition, like rare earths and batteries and magnets and you name it. So uh, I know you, you mentioned how, um, you know, how uh, NATO now is focused more on the threat from China, especially after Putin and Xi Jinping expressed their enduring love for each other, or at least, you know, no limits to their friendship uh, just prior to the invasion invasion of Ukraine in February. What is your perspective on, on the threat from China, the economic threat, as we see Lithuania, for example, come out under coercive pressure from China? And how is Norway responding? And what do you think needs to be done more broadly uh, across European nations and, and uh, in North America and, and, and our, our developed free market economies?
2: Well, I think first and foremost, just a comment to your um, enduring friendship uh, point on, on Putin and Xi. Well, I, I think it's fair to say that the you kind know, of strategic partnership between the two countries um, is a strong one. Uh, but I think that China also is worried about what is happening to Russia because they do not necessarily have an interest in a weak Russia because Russia is taking care of, in a way, the Chinese interests in our part of the world and they can focus on the South China Sea, for instance. So, so this is really, um, I would say, a relationship that rests on a lot of different um, say points. And and of course, one of them being that that Russia is more dependent on China than China is on Russia. And I think that's quite, quite obvious. And what holds up part of the chinese um model is also that they have access to western markets to to sell their goods and if they for instance are uh, hit by sanctions that could that could they could suffer a real blow uh, into their ability to secure for instance economic growth so so this is a it is a very uh, i would say a very interesting and a very kind of delicate uh balance here and and i think you're absolutely right that the interest in nato now for looking into China is is much greater. And I've I've said repeatedly also uh, in Norway that the fact that NATO is now discussing China does not mean that it is a military answer to the question China. But unless NATO takes into account how our security surroundings are changing, we are not doing our job. So when we are looking into China, we are looking into the world's second biggest economy, we're looking into the world's biggest, at least in numbers, uh, Navy, and, and we have to take into account what it means that these changes have taken place. And again, that doesn't mean that one looks at China as a military threat to Europe or to NATO, but we have to look at what our surroundings are like. And, and this is a part of, of that, um, that analysis that I think is absolutely good and vital that NATO has been doing. And I. I I've seen over the course of the past years also the quite unanimous approach by NATO countries to this assessment and, and to the analysis. But I also think it's important to put China and Russia in different baskets, so to say, because they represent something different when it comes to strategic challenge and threat to NATO countries. And, and I think that's that's really important to do. Um, so I think that when it comes to being dependent on, on China and, and the value chains, I've, I think we've seen both during the pandemic and also now that the dependence in general is too uh, big. At the same time, I think everyone needs to see a functioning world economy. Uh, you and I are both uh, warm defenders of free trade. But of course, we have to take into account security concerns. Otherwise, we wouldn't, um, we wouldn't take our job seriously and we wouldn't be um, good advocates for our national interests in this. And that is extremely important. And that is also why I think there has been a very interesting debate in most European countries, both in the EU as an organization, but also in individual European countries and in the countries that are not members of of the EU, but still are very closely linked to the EU economically on, on how to deal with these challenges, how to deal with the dependency that can make us vulnerable in a situation of crisis. Should we make sure that more production takes place in Europe? Uh, Should we find alternatives elsewhere? And that doesn't mean that you're shutting out uh, trading with China, for instance, but you have to be aware of the dependencies and possible vulnerabilities it creates for you. And um, I think it was—it's um, been very interesting to see also how um, this has played out in the uh, China-U.S. context, where in the beginning uh, there were many people who looked at the strategic, I would say, um, competition or or the the big power rivalry um, between U.S. and China as something that had to do only with trade and tariffs. But that's just a small part of it. This is a deep strategic. Uh, competition and it has to do with a lot more it has to do with values it has to do with trade it has to do with security and i think you have to understand kind of the the whole spectrum of this to really understand uh, what the challenges may be and also how we are going to deal with um, an increasing and interdependency and also uh, potential vulnerability, especially when it comes to the security arena that, that we all have to deal with. We cannot shy away from those discussions, even though we may choose different solutions from time to time.
0: I'm so glad you raised the values point because of course, every, every Chinese company has to act as an arm of the Chinese Communist Party. And I, I was really encouraged by the German government's decision recently not to no longer underwrite Volkswagen's manufacturing in a province where, where genocide is happening. In Xinjiang. so i think it's going to be more it's going to become tougher and tougher for i think norwegian companies american companies uh any any western companies to do business in china without compromising their values and i think that's a big aspect to think of minimizing risk um in, in in economic relations and financial relations with with china you know I, i've got two just two last fun questions for you you know because we've covered so much and it's been a real tour de force but you're one of the very few people I, that I'm aware of, who I'm aware of, uh, who's who's been both Minister of Defense and and uh, and and Minister of Foreign Affairs. I mean, George Marshall comes to mind, you know, for, for me here in the United States. And it, you've always struck me as someone who is very sensitive to the need to integrate what we're doing diplomatically with with our military capabilities, what we're doing militarily. Could you just talk a little bit about the experience of being both Foreign Minister and Minister of Defense and and what our viewers and and those who are interested in, in public policy and and in strategy um, should should learn from your experience.
2: Well, I would say first and foremost, it's really been a privilege to to hold both positions and, and to be able to do this for eight years is it doesn't seem like a long time, but when you're a minister, eight years is is quite some, some time. I and mean, you really need a vacation when you go off. Uh, government after eight years, but it's really been a privilege, but it's also been a, at a time where we have seen so many changes uh, completely uh, in our defense sector, in our uh, diplomatic sector. Uh, the world has changed so dramatically that it's really been also um, a 24-7 job, I would say. And I would say that I, I, when I came into uh, the foreign ministry, I was very happy that I had four years as a defense minister before that when I became a defense minister I was very happy that I had four years as chairman of the foreign affairs and defense committee in parliament before that because it gives you a bit of perspective and back in 2009 uh, when I started as chair of the foreign affairs and defense committee we were in the first year of a joint committee we had one defense committee and one foreign affairs committee before that and I was one of those advocating a joint committee, because in my opinion, it's impossible to see the two aspects separated from each other, especially in our world. And I think it's really been a strength that we have a joint committee in parliament. And I think it was um, it was good to have those four years of defense minister before becoming a minister of foreign affairs. And I've always said, and I, I strongly believe in this, that What has always given Norway our space for maneuver in foreign policy is our ability to join and to be part of alliances. And I would say the most um, important part of this, in my opinion, is, of course, NATO, when you look at security policy. The fact that other countries are willing to risk their own soldiers' health and extremists, their life to support and to defend others is, in my opinion, the, the clearest example of being an ally you can possibly find. And without allies, big countries and small countries would face a very, very different reality. And it's the alliances that keeps us together. And the alliances that we are working with, like NATO, is both a military but also a political alliance. And unless we look at the political side of this, our alliances will be weaker. As one example, I mean, we are as a military alliance not stronger than our political cohesion. You know well too, that unless we agree on the threat perception, the analysis, and also in the most extreme cases, the willingness to invoke Article 5, we can have all the military strength we want, but we are not stronger militarily than our political cohesion, and that is why I think we need to invest equally in both. And again, that is why I think having had both perspectives um, offers something that is um, is good and and valuable when you are working with these issues in a world that has been turned upside down several times over the past ten years.
0: Absolutely, war is indeed a contest of wills, and I often quote. Secretary George Shultz, you know, just passed away here relatively recently at the age of 100 at the Hoover Institution. And he said that negotiation is a euphemism for capitulation unless the shadow of power is cast across the bargaining table. And I think it's just a great way to explain the need to integrate what you're doing militarily to what you're trying to achieve politically. The last question has to do with with, uh, jumping out of airplanes. I mean, is it true that you jump out of airplanes to relax? (laughs)
2: <laughs> well um, when, when you ask pilots in the air force they have a tendency to say that we just do not understand the point of jumping out of a plane that works and i can see that and i can't understand that but um i i really find um a lot of joy in Jumping out of planes. Having said that, I'm I'm having, of course, a parachute. I'm not just jumping off,
1: but <laughs> it's
2: it's really uh, something that I I really enjoy doing. I haven't been doing it so much lately, but um, I've had the privilege of, of several jumps, and it's really um, it's really been very fun, very fascinating. And you've done it also, haven't you? Several times. You know,
0: I think I have a record, and my record is. The biggest gap in between jumps. So I jumped in airborne and rangers going to eighty five. I jumped again <gasps> as commander of Fort Benning, Georgia, in two thousand and fourteen. After oh. my after my ten minute refresher class. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well,
2: uh, but you know the feeling uh, of of that complete kind yeah. of the the jumping off or or just. Um, just lean well, out. you go from a noisy
0: environment to just complete silence and drifting. Exactly. It's really, it, it is, it is. It's and amazing. that is,
2: it's just so fascinating that that it's really when you just jump out or lean out, it's a lot of noise, it's a lot of speed, it's a lot of everything, and the chute goes up, and everything is just completely quiet. Uh, <laughs> and and I mean, the free fall is amazing. The quiet is amazing and uh, for me that has really been um, a treasure to experience.
0: Just make sure good people are packing your chute, that's most <laughs> important <Yes. laughs> Definitely. <laughs> you know, what a, what a pleasure it's been to talk with you. I'd like to just give you an opportunity to say anything you'd like to in conclusion to our, to our listeners and our viewers. Um, anything you'd like to, to add for our international audience?
2: Well, I think that has to be um, a point or two on, on Russia, because in addition to what we talked about, um, I think it is extremely important that the world does not shy away from the aggression and the threat that Russia is posing to its neighboring countries. And Russia doesn't seem to have any interest in finding a political solution uh, after the invasion of Ukraine on the 24th of February but it has to be a political solution at some point. Uh, But Ukraine has to be in the driver's seat as to what that kind of solution is going to look like. Um, But I think it's important also to look at the history here and to to see that this renewed attack on Ukraine didn't come out of the blue. It followed a very clear path where I think that also the West or like-minded countries lack of firm responses has Allowed or made it possible for Russia to go further steps. And, and my experience in both foreign and defense policy is that when you are dealing with Russia, you have to make sure that um, you set very clear boundaries for what kind of issues or behavior you accept. Because if you do not push back, it is seen as an acceptance of a position, which it is not. And I mean, we have experienced um, a good neighborship with Russia. Uh, we have not never been at war with Russia. But we have also seen a change in the internal situation in Russia that has spilled over on foreign policy very clearly. The clamping down on civil society, the complete disregard of basic human rights, uh, and also the fact that it is impossible nowadays to be an opposition in in russia and and what he has done what putin has done and the regime has done to uh, everyone that tries to um oppose or position themselves in, with a different opinion has been been devastating to see and of course that spills over in the possibilities we've seen also over the past years to cooperate on areas where we have joint interests i mean we have a long history of cooperation with with russia Either on fisheries management, people-to-people contact, nuclear security and safety, environmental issues, but of course the space for this has been shrinking gradually and quite rapidly, I would say, over the past years, and that is due to Russian behavior. And we have always had to deal with Russia with firmness and predictability. That's part of our our neighborly relations. But now the scope for any kind of political, um, any kind of political cooperation is gone. And and I said in back in 2014 that our relationship with Russia was changed forever. Uh, And there were a lot of uh, people who criticized that at that time. But I think it was right to say it then. I think it is correct now. Uh, And and of course, uh, right now it is Russia who holds the key to how Western countries um, is going to deal with the country in the future. But to see the scope for the kind of cooperation that Western countries have had with Russia for many, many years uh, is very, very difficult right now.
0: Minister Sarada, on behalf of the Hoover Institution, thank you for your leadership and your example. Thank you for helping us learn more about battlegrounds that are important to building a, a better future, a future of peace and prosperity for generations to come. What a pleasure it's been to be with you again.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me. And I, I really hope that even though you had to get up early, you are going to survive the day.
1: It's been a pleasure It was totally to be worth it.
0: Totally worth <laughs> it to be with you. Thank you so it's much. It's been a pleasure <laughs> to be with you.
1: Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.